This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Steve Brown. The Age of Reason by Thomas Paine. Part 2, Section 17. I am not one of those who are fond of believing there is much of that which is called willful lying, or lying originally, except in the case of men setting up to be prophets, as in the Old Testament. For prophesying is lying professionally. In almost all other cases, it is not difficult to discover the progress by which even simple supposition, with the aid of credulity, will in time grow into a lie and at last be told as a fact. And whenever we can find a charitable reason for a thing of this kind, we ought not to indulge a severe one. The story of Jesus Christ appearing after he was dead is the story of an apparition, such as timid imaginations can always create in vision, and credulity believe. Stories of this kind had been told of the assassination of Julius Caesar, not many years before, and they generally have their origin in violent deaths or in the execution of innocent persons. In cases of this kind, compassion lends its aid and benevolently stretches the story. It goes on a little and a little further till it becomes a most certain truth. Once started ghost and credulity fills up the history of its life and assigns the cause of its appearance one tells it one way, another another way, till there are as many stories about the ghost and about the proprietor of the ghost as there are about Jesus Christ in these four books. The story of the appearance of Jesus Christ is told with that strange mixture of the natural and impossible that distinguishes legendary tale from fact. He is represented as suddenly coming in and going out when the doors were shut, and of vanishing out of sight and appearing again, as one would conceive of an unsubstantial vision. Then again he is hungry, sits down to meat, and eats his supper. But as those who tell stories of this kind never provide for all the cases, so it is here. They have told us that when he arose he left his grave clothes behind him, but they have forgotten to provide other clothes for him to appear in afterward, or to tell us what he did with them when he ascended, whether he stripped all off or went up clothes and all. In the case of Elijah, they have been careful enough to make him throw down his mantle. How it happened not to be burned in the chariot of fire they also have not told us. But as imagination supplies all deficiencies of this kind, we may suppose, if we please, that it was made of salamander's wool. Those who are not much acquainted with ecclesiastical history may suppose that the book called the New Testament has existed ever since the time of Jesus Christ, as they suppose that the books ascribed to Moses have existed ever since the time of Moses. But the fact is historically otherwise. There was no such book as the New Testament till more than 300 years after the time that Christ is said to have lived. At what time the books ascribed to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John began to appear is altogether a matter of uncertainty. 
There is not the least shadow of evidence of who the persons were that wrote them, nor at what time they were written, and they might as well have been called by the names of any of the other supposed apostles, as by the names they are now called. The originals are not in the possession of any Christian church existing, any more than the two tables of stone written on. They pretend by the finger of God upon Mount Sinai and given to Moses are in the possession of the Jews. And even if they were, there is no possibility of proving the handwriting in either case. At the time those books were written, there was no printing, and consequently there could be no publication, otherwise than by written copies, which any man might make or alter at pleasure, and call them originals. Footnote. The former part of the Age of Reason has not been published in two years, and there is already an expression in it that is not mine. The expression is, The book of Luke was carried by a majority of one voice only. It may be true, but it is not that I have said it. Some person who might know of the circumstance has added it in a note at the bottom of the page of some of the editions, printed either in England or in America, and the printers, after that, have placed it into the body of the work and made me the author of it. If this has happened within such a short space of time, notwithstanding the aid of printing, which prevents the alteration of copies individually, what may have not happened in a much greater length of time when there was no printing, and when any man who could write could make a written copy and call it an original by Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. End of footnote. Can we suppose it is consistent with the wisdom of the Almighty to commit himself and his will to man upon such precarious means as these, or that it is consistent we should pin our faith upon such uncertainties? We cannot make, nor alter, nor even imitate so much as one blade of grass that he has made, and yet we can make or alter words of God as easily as words of man. About 350 years after the time that Christ is said to have lived, several writings of the kind I am speaking of were scattered in the hands of diverse individuals. And as the church had began to form itself into a hierarchy, or church government, with temporal powers, it set itself about collecting them into a code, as we now see them called the New Testament. They decided by vote, as I have before said in the former part of the Age of Reason, which of these writings, out of the collection they had made, should be the Word of God, and which should not. The rabbins of the Jews had decided, by vote, upon the books of the Bible before. As the object of the church, as is the case in all national establishments of churches, was power and revenue, and terror the means it used, it is consistent to suppose that the most miraculous and wonderful of the writings they had collected stood the best chance of being voted. And as to the authenticity of the books, the vote stands in the place of it, for it can be traced no higher. Disputes, however, ran high among the people then calling themselves Christians, not only as to points of doctrine, but as to the authenticity of the books. 
in the contest between the persons called St. Augustine and Faust about the year 400. The latter says, The books, called the Evangelists, have been composed long after the times of the Apostles by some obscure men, who, fearing that the word would not give credit to the relation of matters of which they could not be informed, have published them under the names of the Apostles, and which are so full of sottishness and discordant relations that there is neither agreement nor connection between them. And in another place, addressing himself to the advocates of those books as being the word of God, he says, It is thus that your predecessors have inserted in the scriptures of our Lord many things, which, though they carry his name, agrees not with his doctrines. This is not surprising, since that we have often proved that these things have not been written by himself, nor by his apostles, but that for the greater part they are founded upon tales, upon vague reports, and put together by I know not what, half-Jews, but with little agreement between them, in which they have nevertheless published under the names of the apostles of our Lord, and have thus attributed to them their own errors and their lies. Footnote. I have these two extracts from Bollinger's Life of Paul, written in French. Bollinger has quoted them from the writings of Augustine against Faust, to which he refers. End footnote. The reader will see by these extracts that the authenticity of the books of the New Testament was denied, and the books treated as tales, forgeries, and lies, at the time they were voted to be the word of God. See footnote. But the interest of the church, with the assistance of the faggot, bore down the opposition, and at last suppressed all investigation. Miracles followed upon miracles, if we will believe them, and the men were taught to say they believed whether they believed or not. But, by way of throwing in a thought, the French Revolution has excommunicated the Church from the power of working miracles. She has not been able, with the assistance of all her saints, to work one miracle since the Revolution began, and as she never stood in greater need than now, we may, without the aid of divination, conclude that all her former miracles were tricks and lies. When we consider the lapse of more than 300 years intervening between the time that Christ is said to have lived and the time the New Testament was formed into a book, we must see, even without the assistance of historical evidence, the exceeding uncertainty there is of its authenticity. The authenticity of the book of Homer so far as regards the authorship, is much better established than that of the New Testament, though Homer is a thousand years the more ancient. It is only an exceedingly good poet that could have written the book of Homer, and therefore few men only could have attempted it, and a man capable of doing it would not have thrown away his own fame by giving it to another. In like manner, there were but few that could have composed Euclid's elements, because none but an exceedingly good geometrician could have been the author of that work.
Footnote. Bollinger, in his life of Paul, has collected from the ecclesiastical histories and from the writings of fathers, as they are called, several matters which show the opinions that prevailed among the different sects of Christians at the time the Testament, as we now see it, was voted to be the word of God. The following extracts are from the second chapter of that work. The Marcionists, a Christian sect, assumed that the evangelists were filled with falsities. The Manichaeans, who formed a very numerous sect at the commencement of Christianity, rejected as false all the New Testament and showed other writings quite different that they gave for authentic. The Cerinthians, like the Marcionists, admitted not the Acts of the Apostles. The Ancritides and the Severians adopted neither the Acts nor the Epistles of Paul. Chrysostom, in a homily which he made upon the Acts of the Apostles, says that in his time, about the year 400, many people knew nothing either of the author of the book. St. Irene, who lived before that time, reports that the Valentinians, like several other sects of Christians, accused the scriptures of being filled with imperfections, errors, and contradictions. The Ebionites, or Nazarenes, who were the first Christians, rejected all the epistles of Paul and regarded him as an impostor. They report, among other things, that he was originally a pagan, that he came to Jerusalem, where he lived some time, and that having a mind to marry the daughter of the high priest, he caused himself to be circumcised, but that, not being able to obtain her, he quarreled with the Jews and wrote against circumcision and against the observance of the Sabbath and against all the legal ordinances. End of footnote. End of section 17.